Today we are joined by two special guests from Oxford University who are working together in the field of cancer immunology and have been users of all of our three platforms. We have Matthew Bottomley, who's a group leader in renal medicine at Oxford University and a consultant nephrologist at the Oxford Kidney and Transplant Unit at the Churchill Hospital. In addition, he's the Nana String Hub lead at the CAMS Oxford Institute. In addition to Matthew, we have Adam Bates, is a PhD or DPhil student in Tao Dong's group currently working on characterizing and understanding CD8 plus T cell responses in non-small cell lung cancer and its microenvironment. So during this podcast episode, we will talk about their common interest for cancer immunology, the challenges that are facing this field, how they are using facial biology and how those challenges can be tackled thanks to this technology. This is the Spatial Navigator podcast brought to you by Nanostring. As the pioneer in the field of spatial biology, Nanostring enables scientists to see the multiamic expression of genes and proteins in the natural context of tissue structure. In this podcast series, we present the work that researchers are doing in the field and share initiatives to engage and support them. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much, Adam and Matthew, for accepting our invitation to the podcast. Let's get started with the first questions. Can you say a few words about your research, the research that each of the teams are doing and what brought us together to collaborate? Sure. So I'll start. So as you said, I'm a consultant nephrologist at the Oxford Kidney Unit. And my interest in this field and in cancer immunology, which is what we're working in, has come from the clinical observation that patients who have a kidney transplant get a lot more cancer than they should do. And they don't have access to some of the more cutting edge drugs in the oncology world. And I'm talking specifically about sort of the checkpoint and checkpoint blockade agents that have really taken over the oncology world. They don't work very well with transplant patients because it doesn't just stimulate an immune response against the cancer. It stimulates an immune response against the transplant. Transplant. So that creates a real problem and also creates an unmet need that we need to find new pathways and new ways of, of managing cancer in these patients. And along the way, we can find ways to better understand why they are more prone to cancer and also perhaps better our risk stratification, which might allow early interventions. So that was how I sort of came into this field of cancer immunology, despite being a nephrologist. And so my interest in this area and the spatial element of it all has come from that and that attempt to understand what's going on in the tumor microenvironment that may differ between people with and without a kidney transplant. And I think I did that during my medical postgraduate medical training in another lab. And then when I moved to the COI as a group lead, it was an opportunity really to sort of grab the bull by the horns, as it were, and really drive this forward and say to the COI, I think this is a really good technology, a really good tool. And I think we have the opportunity to be at the forefront of that if we embrace it and move quickly. And so that was how I sort of came to be the lead of the of the hub here at the COI. Right. Also, transplanted patients, they get the immunosuppressive medicine, right? So that would also mm. impact on their cancer surveillance as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's something we've known about for a little while, but it's mm. been something that's been fairly difficult to study because you can't get many cells out of tissue. Those cells you can, you've manipulated horrifically. And so people have done that work, but it's generally been in vitro assays or they have done sort of very low plex immunofluorescence, for example. So it's all been a bit limited. So you're right. This, this is something we know a little bit about but these technologies offers that ability to deep dive a bit more into it to really understand yeah. it sounds good uh, what about you and so he mentioned checkpoints i guess checkpoint is something that you know a bit more also from the work done in lung or um 
in the T cell field? Yep, definitely. So yeah, my research, as you've mentioned already, is focused on trying to understand CD8 T cell responses in lung cancer. So we've known for a long time that CD8 T cell responses are incredibly important in controlling cancers in general and lung cancer especially. And as you mentioned, immune checkpoint receptors, immune checkpoint blockade that blocks these inhibitory receptors has had some really positive effects in the clinic. It works really, really well in some patients, but for a lot of patients, it isn't able to maintain durable responses and they either don't show a response initially or they relapse very quickly. On top of the risk of the treatment not actually having any benefit, there are significant toxicities associated which make the patient's life quite miserable. And if they're on that treatment, they're not on another treatment that they could potentially benefit more from. So the aim of my research is really to try and understand what's happening in the tumor in microenvironment. Currently, I'm looking at samples that are pre-treatment. So what cells are there that the immune checkpoint blockade or another type of treatment could potentially modulate? And the aim would be to identify cell populations that are likely to benefit from ICB or another type of immunotherapy to help stratify patients. Because currently, we, we don't really have a good method for stratifying patients that will have a positive response to therapy versus a negative response beyond really just looking at the degree of T-cell infiltration in the tumor. So we know from a lot of published work over the last five or so years that both the tumor itself is highly heterogeneous and the CD8 T-cell compartment is highly heterogeneous. So we're able to look at things like clonal dynamics and differences in phenotype using single cell data, but the tumor is incredibly heterogeneous structurally as well. And in all of these single cell assays, we lose all that structural information about which cells are actually inside the tumor in contact with malignant cells, which are maybe just there by circumstance and are not actually contributing to the immune response. So I think Matt was really instrumental in highlighting the nanostring spatial platforms as a new technology that we could bring to the COI. And I think I kind of, I think my supervisor Tao is uh, very keen on it and kind of pointed it out to me. And I really jumped on the opportunity and have been trying to help push the platform at the COI with Matt's supervision and guidance over the last couple of years now. It's not only the heterogeneity between patients, but also within a certain patient that the yeah. location and the biopsies that you get may be also quite different from yeah, within there's... the same patient. And that's even without treating them. So imagine also when you start treating and then you may see, I guess, different responses in different areas of the organ, I would say, not even just the tumor, but also its sort of environment. If I just interrupt, that, that's something I think has been perhaps a disconnect between the clinical and the scientific, actually, that for a long time we've known clinically, when you look at a tumor under a microscope, different bits of it look very different. But I don't think that's necessarily come across in the science. As Adam said, I tend to use these sort of spatially agnostic approaches, which just mulch all that up and it's lost. So this really offers that ability to bring those two things back together. I like that. So that brings me actually very well to the next question, which is how you are combining these two activities as a scientist and as a clinician. Matthew, um, do you think that somehow is impacting or serving one another? Can you bring some of the questions from the clinics to the lab and the other mm. way around, some of the discoveries that you are making are yeah. somehow more amenable to patients? I think that, that's a, a really interesting point as a clinician and a scientist. What do you bring? And I think that's a more general point, actually, because I can't dedicate my time full time to science like people like Adam can, who are sort of dedicated basic scientists. I'm not a dedicated clinician. So what am I 
doing. Uh, and actually, like you say, we straddle both worlds and that allows us to really see both sides of the arguments. You know, I see patients, I see the problems they get. I manage those problems. And, and that means you become very aware of the areas where you, sometimes you're unfortunately saying to patients, we don't know what's going on here. We don't really understand the problem and we don't really have a good treatment for it. And that then helps form those research questions in a very patient focused way. So, you know, how do we make life better for our patients? How do we extend their quality or quantity of life? And that's one part of it. With one foot also in the science camp, you can then immediately start to think, well, this technology will work. This approach will work. How can we do that? And I'm, I'm very lucky as a clinician scientist that I'm supported in the COI by a fantastic team of scientists who really do see the scientific side. So I can go and say, this is a problem. This is how I think we could deal with it. These are my early ideas. And then we bounce ideas off each other and say, yeah, that's going to work. That's a really bad idea. That's not going to work. And so you really bring it out of the clinical arena into the scientific arena. But then equally, when you make those discoveries, when people like Adam are talking in, in symposia and things like that, I'm able to sit there as a clinician and go, that's really interesting because what you found corresponds with a clinical observation we made years ago, or there's a drug that might target that. So actually, I can bring that clinical arena into the scientific as the results come out. You know, how might we implement this? Best case scenario in five years time when our discoveries are all being implemented into big randomized controlled trials, we can be the ones who drive those as the clinicians. We can design those studies and run those studies. I think that the clinical academic is never going to be the strongest clinician, will probably never be the strongest scientist, but you bring something unique by sitting in the middle. Yeah, I really like that. And then you can collaborate with both sides as well. Like you could be sort of yeah. the messenger that or the translator, because that's why it's called, right? Yeah. Translational research. It means mm. that you're translating things from one to the other. And then I guess that also works quite well to, to get funding because funding bodies, they really like to understand that you are addressing an unmet need. Of course, you may end up discovering something completely new and unexpected, but you are doing that out of a need mm. that it's in the yeah. field for, for patients, right? So, Absolutely. Yeah. The funders are often charities, the vast majority, which means that they are beholden to their, their donors, their trustees, and you know these people said these charities to improve patient care. So th what they're always thinking is how does you looking at this sodium channel, this pathway, how does that change the patient's experience? Because that's what the patient, you know, why people donate the money. They want their grandmother, their brother, their sister, their daughter to live longer, to live a happier your life to have access to new treatments so that's what it comes down to and like you say it's, it's creating that connect between the two and i guess that you're saying innovative technologies is also something that is attractive to both sides because you may be able to see something you were not seeing before so yeah. that brings me to my next question which is how do you see spatial biology being used at the moment for a specific field which is the one that you are collaborating with mm. that's cancer immunology What do you think are the challenges at the moment and how could spatial biology help overcome those challenges? Hmm. Maybe Adam and I answer this one separately because I think we have slightly different perspectives on it, having come at it from different angles. But certainly as the clinician in me, we've got years and thousands and thousands of patients worth of samples sitting in clinical archives of weird and wonderful presentations of disease, of patients who've done very well and patients who've done very badly. And these are all collected. They're all sitting in archives. But the problem is they're all frozen in formalin. They're all embedded in, in formalin by and large because that's a nice, easy thing to store, which means you can't easily do you know, RNA sequencing. RNA work. You, you can, but with, with a lot of challenges and a lot of degradation of the RNA and things, you know, which means, again, which is why a lot of the clinical work up until now has been limited to in vitro work with cells that you've grown, cell lines and things, or immunohistochemistry, immunofluorescence. So for me, one of the real strengths of the spatial profiling approach is being able to go back to those tissues that we already have, pull them back out of the repository and say, right, this, this phenomenon we've known about for a little while, but never been able to look at, let's go back and look at it again. On the samples we've got, we know what the clinical outcomes of the patients are and actually really explore what's going on in that tissue. And you don't have issues like losing the cell populations, you know, very delicate cells like fibroblasts or neurons, for example, because they're embedded, they're not going anywhere. So you can really explore those cells in a way that we haven't been able to do before 
before on tissue samples that we haven't really been able to do anything with before. That's for me is the big strength of the spatial profiling approach, revisiting tissue and looking at cells that have been historically ignored a bit. These rare cells as well, some of the rare cells or neutrophils or things that mm. haven't been studied a lot. Yeah. And what's your perspective on that? And how are you using spatial biology in your lab and how do you see it in the future? So uh, my research actually started with quite a large single cell RNA-seq data set. So really nicely highlights the heterogeneity within the CD8 T-cell compartment. It's multi-patient. It's a great data set. But as I mentioned before, we don't have any spatial information. And I'm trying to answer, which is something that is in theory a very simple question, which T-cells help fight the tumor? But it's immunologically incredibly complicated because space is important, phenotype is important, T-cell receptor specificity is important, and there's so many different levels to this question. And I think it's fair to say that currently no one has a nice streamlined approach to make it an easy question to answer. So what the nanostring platforms have given us the opportunity to do is, as Matt said, go back to historic samples and look at these cells in space. And what has been quite fortunate for me is the same patients that we got samples to do our 10x single cell work also have FFPE tissue blocks stored in the biobank. So I've been able to go back to the same patient samples and then look for the same T cell populations that I was able to identify at a single cell resolution in space, which is what right. I've been working on for the last year or so. Nice. Sort of spatial deconvolution. Yeah, that's the idea. To follow up on that, earlier this year, Nanostring launched a new essay for TCR profiling using the geomics. And I know that your lab has been one of those who got early access to this product. And so far, we know quite little about what this essay is allowing people to do because only a few labs have it. Could you comment on how you are already using or planning to use this TCR profiling reagent and some of the insights that you are expecting to see? So as I mentioned, TCR specificity is one of the biggest complications we're trying to understand T-cell receptor responses and cancer-specific responses. T-cell receptor is just so diverse that currently it's not possible to look at a receptor sequence and know what it's going to recognize. So we tend to look at surrogate markers such as clonal expansion within the tumor microenvironment or the phenotype of the cells as well to give us an indication of whether this T-cell receptor is potentially tumor-specific. So in our single-cell data, which we started with, we can see a number of T-cell receptors that show very interesting characteristics. They're highly expanded. They are associated with phenotypes that look highly cytotoxic, and they have all the indications of being tumor-specific, but we don't know where these cells are in space. So <laughs> with the TCR profiling add-on from Nanostring, we're able to look at populations of cells, segregate them by space, and look for the same kind of features we're seeing in the single cell data in spatial data. We are looking to see whether, for example, cells that are aggregating at the tumor margin or the tumor invasive body show significant clonal expansion relative to cells that exist outside of the tumor body and may be associated with normal lung vasculature or normal lung airways. And I think this works really nicely in conjunction with the whole transcriptome atlas probe sets because now we're able to link our spatial data with our single cell data at a phenotypic level and a clonal level as well. So it's just right. allowing allowing us to better match two different data sets which come from very different technologies and might be quite difficult to align, but it's giving us multiple methodologies to do that. Not an easy task, the data analysis. You're getting the expressions out of the cell population, uh, but you're also seeing the readout, like the functionality. You also look at what happens in the tumor, 
right, in response to these T cells that are surrounding. Yeah. So you can really pick up the ones that are actually, let's say, actively working and killing the tumor, being cytotoxic to the tumor. So that's quite cool. So you may actually discover a new potential drug target. The new... That's the hope. That would be nice. <laughs> So one thing that you mentioned earlier is that, yeah, you can use this data to better stratify the patients prior to giving them the therapy, but you may also discover potential new targets for some other pharma company or biotech to follow through. Okay, that's cool. So now we are getting to, to the end of the podcast and taking into consideration the overall and big experience that Oxford has with all of the three platforms going from bulk with encounter to spatial first with the geomics and then single cell now with cosmics. Can you give us your views and impressions on the combination, the power of using them together, how they complement each other and how they are suitable for the type of questions that uh, your teams are um, currently answering? Yeah, so I think they're all three very complementary platforms and the geomics and the cosmics offer that ability to see the spatial, work out where something's happening in, in that tissue sample, but that comes at a cost and that cost is a financial cost, it's a real cost, um, which means that it's often, unless you happen to be a very large pharma company or be very rich, you don't really have the ability to scale this up very easily. So you can identify something in the geomics and the cosmics and then you want to validate it and say another 30 or 40 samples. Really the encounter offers the ability to do that because the cost is much less. You lose the spatial but maybe you don't need it at this point. You've identified it spatially, you've identified a new pathway, a new target, and actually all you need to do is just validate it in a large number of samples that it exists or that it's happening. And then actually you can give up on the spatial and move back to the bulk with a panel that's very easy to use, you know, 700 genes, which often encompasses most pathways and adjacent pathways, but also is very quick as well. So what's been great with the encounter is the throughput of it, that we can take RNA and less than 24 hours later, we have, you know, especially when you combine it with some of the other data analysis platforms like Rosalind and things, you have sort of publication ready figures within 24 hours that's just not feasible with things like RNA sequencing. So it gives you that ability to focus down on targets and candidate signatures, areas, right? signatures yeah. exactly, candidate areas and turn the data around quickly, which is great. So I mean, we, an example of a paper we published a couple of years ago, we found something very interesting in monocytes. We were interested in what pathways were affected by that. And it was really sort of a last minute decision that we needed to dig down into this. So we ran an encounter panel on these monocytes we had frozen down. And two days later, the figure was in the paper ready to go. If it had been RNA sequencing, that would have been a two or three month turnaround. We already knew what we were interested in. We just needed to find out what the pathway was. So that's how I see the two sort of financially and, and how they fit together, how we've used it with some of the work we've got going on at the moment moment, just focusing a bit more on the on the geomics side and the cosmic side, is the geomics gave us this really interesting story about what might be influencing CD8 T cell behavior. Bioinformatically, we were to pull out all the pathways we thought that were relevant. We even worked out and deconvoluted which cells were producing the thing we we're interested in, which cells were likely to be responding to it. And that was great. But it was all sort of inference, correlations, you know, sort of bioinformatic jiggery poker. Tricks. <laughs> and yeah. And um, and actually what we really want to do is to validate that and say, well, okay, we think it's these cells. We think it's this type of cell that's making it. We think it's this type of cell that's that's receiving the signal. And we think this is what's happening as a result. And actually that was where the cosmics really came into its own because we were able to go back to these same samples, scan areas to single cell resolution. And actually what was great was what we thought was a whole population of cells. It turns out to be one specific subtype of those cells that's doing this behavior. So it allowed us to deep dive into this story. We already had the story, but we made it a granular story and really deep dive into the cells. We validated what we thought we'd found. So we confirmed the receptor was on the cells we thought it was, the mark was being produced by the cells we thought it was. And actually we discovered a new pathway along the way that was probably the mechanism of action because we were able to deep dive into those individual cells, find the cells that were being affected versus those that weren't. And actually that revealed a pathway we hadn't spotted. So that gave us a new mechanism That's to explore. That's very, very cool. 
And then we went back to the geomix and validated it in reverse and found the pathway was there all along. It's just we hadn't spotted it. I see. Okay. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier in the podcast the value of going back into archival material. And how far have you been? Because the encounter is also something that can be used Mm. for this archival material, something that you discovered today thanks to the fancy new spatial tools. You may still be able to then go back. Mm. We are doing various work on samples that we actually collected as part of a clinical study nearly 10 years ago. In fact, some of the samples were 12 years ago. So we pulled back those archived samples and made fresh cuts on them. The cosmic SMI and the photo probes are not offered and or delivered to the following UPC member states. Austria, Belgium, Bulgaria, Denmark, Estonia, Finland, France, Germany, Italy, Latvia, Lithuania, Luxembourg, Malta, Netherlands, Portugal, Slovenia, Sweden for use in these countries for the detection of RNA in a method used for the detection of a reality of analyzing a cell or tissue sample without the consent of the President and Fellows of Harvard College, Harvard Corporation as owner of the unitary patent EP4108782B1. The use for the detection of RNA is prohibited without the consent of the President and Fellows of Harvard College, Harvard Corporation. The cosmic SMI and the quality probes are not offered and or delivered to the Federal Republic of China. Germany for use in the Federal Republic of Germany for the detection of cellular RNA, messenger RNA, microRNA, ribosomal RNA, and any combinations thereof in a method used in fluorescence in situ hybridization for detecting a plurality of analytes in a sample without the consent of the President and Fellows of Harvard College, Harvard Corporation, as owner of the German part of EP 2794928B1. The use for the detection of cellular RNA, messenger RNA, microRNA, ribosomal RNA, and any combinations thereof is prohibited without the consent of the President and Fellows of Harvard College, Harvard Corporation. And we've got very nice uh, cosmics and geomics data from it. So actually, it highlights, we, we have haven't run it through the encounter yet, but I'm not expecting any problems given it's worked well with the other two. But it just highlights, yeah, they, they were 12 year old samples. So whilst I know nanostring, I think their recommendation is up to five years, we've gone back to 12 and had no problems at all. And given that you go back to 12, there's no reason why you can go back to 20 or even 25. And where that's really helpful is with weird and wonderful diseases that we come across where you might see a patient one every three or four years. Actually, you can pull them together into a cluster because you can go back 20, 30 years and get the samples back out as long as the embedding and things has been fairly consistent, which it generally yeah. is. And you can create tissue microarrays with those, for example. Mm-hmm. Like coming yeah. back to, I understand these technologies are expensive, and, but there are ways in which you can, with one experiment, get a lot of data, especially yeah. when you know exactly what you're looking for Absolutely. and you can pick the right areas of the tissue. So that's a very nice way to wrap up the podcast. Any other comments from your side, Adam? I think that's highlighted most of what I would have said already. I think in our discussions, we've both agreed the geomics especially is a fantastic tool when you have a very targeted question you want to address because of the cost associated with the technology, the complications or the difficulties with the data analysis. Just some of the other quirks of the technology, it works especially well when you have a defined question you want to answer going in. And in my case, that's where do these predefined populations exist in space? But yeah, I think the the nanostring platforms work especially well together because in my case, having whole transcriptome plex is incredibly important because I'm trying to find very niche minute differences in a very relatively homogenous population, but having single cell resolution is also incredibly important. So the the geomics works for me incredibly well with single cell data, but as the Cosmics platform continues to develop and Plex increases, that need for traditional single cell methodology might be superseded by the, the Cosmics instead. And where Matt's talked about using the encounter to increase cohort sizes in the financially manageable way, I really like how the Encounter works as a readout platform for the geomics. So I've been using the Encounter to read out my protein data. It's very quick. It's very cost efficient. The Plex is sufficient for what I need to do. So yeah, they do work really well as an ecosystem. And I like that you mentioned protein because that was going to be also another comment that we so far have been addressing mostly RNA, but you can really go multi-omic with these platforms and yeah. combining them both. 
especially when you're talking about targets that could be drug targets or biomarkers, you want maybe to have them in the protein expression view or data. You guys are also using a protein as, as yeah, an analyte. And in fact, we are very excited about the immunoproteomic atlas, actually, because that's going back to what you're saying about deep diving into the data and really getting that multiomic story going along. So we're very excited to be implementing that into our workflows as well. It's quite well established in immunology that a key number of key proteins don't necessarily, they're proteomic expression doesn't necessarily align with their transcriptomic expression. So whilst you might be able to define a nice transcriptomic signature, that doesn't necessarily align with how that population really behaves. So being able to screen things on a whole transcriptome level and then validate key markers on a protein level using the same technology, very similar workflows, it really helps streamline that transition from very basic laboratory science answering fundamental questions to then moving along and validating your hypothesis and moving it more towards like a translational finding. You run my mind because that was exactly what I was going to say. You don't need to infer the information from the RNA because you can read out the protein. So that's exactly, okay, that's great. That's a really nice way. So it's spatial multiomics is the future. <laughs> and for you guys, it's already the present. Okay. So I'm going to thank you again for joining, for sharing your views and your experience using the nanostring platforms i want to thank also the, those who are listening and uh, stay tuned for the next episode thanks very much thank you thank you for listening to this episode of the spatial navigator podcast brought to you by nanostring if you'd like to know about nanostring products or contact us please visit nanostring.com you may also get in touch with us through linkedin instagram or twitter the links to which are in the description thank you